Fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome back. We are now in the third episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, and I hope you've been enjoying it so far. We have a great guest uh, lined up for this week. I know our past two guests, Stu Sachs and the Blue Meanie, were very popular, and I'm hoping that. Um, you enjoy this week's guest as well. We are going to get to him in just a minute. I'll tell you a little about him. But first, there's a couple of things I just want to touch on and get out of the way. Uh, one is, I mean, since this is an old school wrestling themed podcast, I thought I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, at the time I'm recording this uh, this week, we lost really one of the legends of women's wrestling in Candy Divine, um, who passed away. Uh, fairly recently, for those who remember, Candy Devine really was one of the standout women's competitors of the 80s, early 90s. Um, she was the AWA Women's World Champion. She was also the women's champion in the USWA in Memphis, um, in the UWF for Herb Abrams, and down in Puerto Rico for Carlos Colon in uh, the World Wrestling Council, several times a women's champion there. So um, a great loss to the world. Of women's wrestling just wanted to make mention of that um a few quick things uh some people have asked me about the song that plays at the beginning of the show so i wanted to mention what that is for people that don't know um and it's sort of related to my book um it is the song i like to hurt people <laughs> which is the theme song for the documentary or the pseudo documentary from the 80s called I Like to Hurt People, which was all about the chic and about Detroit wrestling. So I kind of thought it was appropriate to use as the theme song for Shut Up and Wrestle. So that also brings me to my weekly update on the chic biography, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic, which is my book. It's coming out April 12th, but you can pre-order it now. Um, recently, it was featured as a starred review in Publishers Weekly, which is a pretty big deal in the publishing world. So I'm kind of excited that they spotlighted it in that way. I'm just going to read a brief, a very brief excerpt from Publishers Weekly uh, review of Blood and Fire. They said, and I quote, replete with eye-catching photos and meticulously researched, the narrative is as keen and captivating as its subject. This is a must read for wrestling fans. So who am I to argue with Publishers Weekly? I would encourage you to um, pre-order Blood and Fire now if you have any interest in learning about the life and times of the original Sheik of professional wrestling. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the back end of the show after I'm done with my interview. Um, also wanted to mention coming up, uh, in the uh, immediate weeks to come, I'm going to be making a couple of podcast appearances, which I was very glad to take part in. 
Uh, one is John McAdams stick to wrestling podcast, which as you know, is a, a fellow member of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, much like shut up and wrestle. And I had a lot of fun with John on there. So that is going to be coming your way soon. Um, for all I know, it may come out before you hear this. So anyway, be looking for that. And the other one, this is the big one, folks. I am going to be a guest on, yes, the Jim Cornette Experience. Um, it's going to be happening very soon. I will be proud to be the guest of the great Brian Last and the great Jim Cornette. Yes, they're both great. Um, and that'll be coming up in uh, the days or weeks to come. So I hope to have more on that very soon. But with all that aside, I want to talk about the guest on today's show, because this is one that I am especially proud of. Uh, and I really mean that because I got to interview. It's not even an interview. I got to talk to somebody that I have known and worked with for two decades that I have such respect for. Uh, he was somebody that I grew up reading. And I'm sorry to say that, Keith, I want to make you feel old, but I grew up reading his stuff in WWF magazine and other places. And then I came to call him a colleague and a very respected colleague and friend. Um, and so we did this interview, which really, quite frankly, is kind of like one of our typical phone calls that we might have, except we just happened to hit a record button. So uh, Keith, as you probably know, uh, was, was and is a longtime wrestling magazine writer. I worked with him on the WWE publications, and I also currently work with him on Inside the Ropes magazine. And he's also, for, for you wrestling book readers out there, you may know him as the author of uh, the Ric Flair biography, To Be the Man. He's the author of the superstar Billy Graham biography, Tangled Ropes. Um, the Freddie Blassie biography, um, Listen You Pencil Net Geek, which for my money is one of the greatest wrestling bios ever written. Um, and most recently, he was the author of um, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, which is a very, very thorough um, history of independent wrestling. So Keith is just a fountain of information and insight. And I think you're really, really, really going to enjoy this conversation that we had. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. So right now, I would like to welcome to the podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome somebody that I've known for 21 years now, I want to say. Um, and if you read WWF magazine as a kid, Raw magazine, WWE magazine, then you know this man and you know his work just like I do. Um, he is, and you know, I'm saying this so you can you can uh, be as modest as you want, Keith. But he is one of the legends of wrestling magazine writing, um, and it is Keith Elliott Greenberg, who I'm also proud to call a friend. Welcome, Keith. And hey, Brian, it's always good to talk to you, whether it's on a podcast or in person. And we've managed to run into each other in person a few times lately. I know we were well. We should tell people I was amazed, but yet not amazed. That when I walked into Madison Square Garden for SmackDown in September, which was like, I think the first time I'd been in the garden in, my, man, years. I think the last time might have been when Bruno went in the Hall of Fame. Um, I bumped into you almost the second I walked into the building. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why am I not surprised? I, I, I stepped off the escalator and you were the first person I saw there. I should have I should have known. Um, but so I so when when I introduced you before, and, and I really mean that, it's like, 
for me, it was one of those things where when I came to work at WWE magazine in 2000, WWF magazine at the time, you know, I already knew your name, of course. I mean, but I, it, I, it was it was a name in the masthead. You know, it was a name like Tom Buchanan and uh, Rich Frieda and people like that. And Ed Ricciuti and and, um, you know, uh, Lugian Frito, who, who yeah. are people that were like, you know, it's almost like you don't know if they really exist. You don't know if they're like Matt Brock or Liz right. Hunter or something. Exactly. <laughs> I remember being quite disappointed when I learned that. Uh, well, well, it was Matt Brock, and who was the female? Was it Liz Hunter? Liz Hunter, right? Was the right. was the that, that they that they were fictional characters, you know? And then when I and to those who might be um, listening and weren't around at the time. In the uh, pro wrestling illustrated family of magazines, there were fictional columnists, and Matt Brock was supposed to be a hard drinking old old school uh, columnist in the vein of, say, a Jimmy Breslin in in uh, at the New York Daily News. And the photo, which was kind of grainy, was actually Bill Apter wearing some kind of visor and portraying this character. So I was actually a little uh, disappointed like you were too, but uh, about the identity of Matt Brock. But you know what? I don't think it actually was Bill Apter because um, who was it that told me? It might have been Stu Sachs or it might have been Bill himself that they said it was it wasn't one of the writers. It was um, like a, one of the editors or one of the copy editors or a layout person. It was just somebody they just liked his look. Like you said, he had like a Jimmy Breslin kind of thing with the visor down. I think he had a cigarette and yes. all this kind of stuff. It was just the perfect, the perfect image. I've been and here we are still talking about it all these years later. I now it would be very easy to clarify this. We could probably get Bill Apter on the phone. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna save him because I want I want to do I want to have Bill as a guest one of these days yeah. and do like a whole hour with him. And, and pick his brain about Andy Kaufman and stuff like that. I could do that all day. But even but even in, even the WWF magazine had that phenomenon, too, because I remember here I thought I was like some super brilliant, smart mark in the 90s when I figured out that Vic Venom was actually Vince Russo. It was an amazing discovery that I made. Um, yeah, and that's true. And I guess maybe Vince Russo. And again, that's another guy you could ask personally. Uh, you know, I wonder, I never asked him if he was inspired by the fictional characters in the PWI family of magazines, you know, and that's and, what, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say when he left for WCW and I think Bill Banks went with him, one of the other, one of the writers there, if I remember correctly, because I remember his assistant, Laura Bryson, who had become the editor of WWF magazine, she showed me this stash of after magazines that had belonged to either Vince or Bill Banks or both. Yeah, Louie had a stash of uh, of after magazines too. So then but maybe I, it was but, his. But but knowing Louie, he probably took them with him when he left. Right. So these were left behind. That's why I thought uh, yeah. that. I think they told me that they were theirs, which would which would be very reasonable to assume that they were kind of inspired by that because we were, too. I mean, I don't know about you, but like me and 
Aaron Williams, one of our other writers, and Robert Bledsoe and Anthony Calley, who came a little bit later. We were inspired by, especially for WWE Magazine, where it was more storyline, we were inspired by those kind of sensationalistic um, after magazine stories. We try and come up with these fictional scenarios and things and just have fun with it. of course. I mean, that was was what got us into so-called wrestling journalism was reading those magazines. I mean, I remember being in about sixth grade and vowing to myself that I would read every single article in, in every wrestling magazine I acquired from cover to cover. And I did. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty good ethic to develop when you think that now a lot of young people don't read at all. Yeah, which was a discovery I made as a high school English teacher. But that's neither here nor there. That's that's for a, a different podcast. But um, what magazines did you did you really like as a kid? What were the ones? Well, that you I had I had a subscription to Wrestling Review, okay. and it was not the Stanley Weston Wrestling Review. So uh, so uh, it, it had come down a notch or two um, after the Stanley Weston owned Wrestling Review. I don't remember who he sold it to, and then. There was a spinoff called Rest. Was it Wrestling News? I have it. Yes. I I have I have it at home. I uh, I'm actually I'm I'm separated, so I have an apartment like three blocks from the house where I live. But I could walk over there. Like I have a very good relationship with everybody, so I could walk over there now and uh, you know look through those magazines because there's you know hundreds if not thousands of wrestling magazines and filing cabinets there and magazines in the attic and my mother is still alive and there's a good five or six hundred wrestling magazines there so then i became hooked on the the bill after magazines and um those magazines at the time were the wrestler and inside wrestling pwi had yet to be created yet and I think I read all of those. I read Wrestling Review, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler, and uh, there was also Wrestling World. And then, yeah. Yeah, then there was Main Event Wrestling, which George Napolitano shot a lot of photos for. And I'm not sure if those came along later, um, but you know, I, I read you know everything that said wrestling on it at the time. It's not like now, like sometimes. I'll see an article about The Rock and I'll skip over it because The Rock is always, you know, being written about. And I remember a time when wrestling was so outside the mainstream that if there was a mention of a wrestler, like if Mike Mazurki, an old wrestler, were in a movie, I would, you know, grab the magazine or the newspaper that that article was in and look at his name because it was an acknowledgement from the wider world that professional wrestling existed and people in professional wrestling did something. Yeah. It, it really is hard to explain to people now how that is. And I, I remember like with the, with the wrestling magazines, you know, you don't really see them anymore. I mean, you know, there's a couple left and you and I are, are blessed to be able to continue to, to write in magazines about wrestling. Well, we, we write for, and I should mention inside the ropes, yeah. which is, a great British magazine that you and I both write for. And I'm fortunate enough, I I do a monthly column for them. And it's an old school throwback newsstand wrestling magazine. But I think the writing and inside the ropes is better than everything that came before. 
And isn't it interesting how, you know, you deal with those guys over there and I do too. And I, I saw them recently. I went over to, yeah. to Glasgow and spent time with them recently. But what I, what I find so fascinating is, you know, they have this nostalgia for the wrestling that they grew up with or read about and the magazines. And so like their nostalgia is for WWF magazine of the eighties and early nineties when it first started. Really 90s. Yeah. Really 90s, Cause they're much, they're much younger than I am and even younger than you are. But that's also too, when it, when WWF really hit the UK, there was that big, it was like 89 to 93 ish where yeah. it was, and it, was it was a time. I remember, uh, you know, there was that SummerSlam and it was uh, Hulk Hogan was no longer the champion, but he wrestled Earthquake uh, in that SummerSlam. And I believe the main event was Rick Rude against the new champ, the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. And I watched with a group of friends who were, I would say the majority were peripheral wrestling fans. There were a couple of hardcore guys uh, Jeff Steinmark and John Diagardi, who I still speak, both of those guys I still speak with. And they had been wrestling fans who I came up with as wrestling fans. Like, I can remember my father taking me to Madison Square Garden and seeing John and Jeff there with John's uncle. I think it was his, it was his uncle Tony uh, had, who had taken him there. And uh, so those guys were there. But then there were other people who we're watching it because it was popular at the time. And watching that show and seeing the borderline wrestling fans losing interest as the show went on. Mm -hmm. And so in the US, without Hogan as the champion, as the, you know, the, um, the lightning rod, fans were drifting away. And simultaneously, the WWF was going into the UK. And in the UK, this was brand new. It was fresh. And even those who remembered World of Sport had not seen the spectacle that was the WWF. And, um, and that was brand new. So, yeah, because of that and, and that they grew up in that era where the rest, there was this, you know, American wrestling explosion over there. They then tend to have kind of a nostalgia for the stuff that the work that we did and, and you did even before me. So <laughs> what does that feel like? Because I know, you know, I'll talk, I was just talking to Stu Sachs. I did a, a talk with him and I was saying how for me, guys like Stu and Bill Apter and all that, I say that to them. Now I have people who are full grown adults, not even kids saying that to me and going, Oh, I grew up reading your, your articles. And it's like, it, it kind of like, it it's jars bizarre. me. I mean, yeah. Nick Aldis said that to me when I was researching my upcoming book. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Nick Aldis. I think Nick Aldis is a real superstar. And for him to say, oh, yeah, I grew up when I was a kid. I, first of all, it's hard to imagine Nick Aldis as a kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, seeing your name in the magazine every month. And it was a trip, you know. Yeah. And, and um, I remember, you know, Kenny McIntosh, who's you know, the force be behind the whole inside the ropes empire because they have podcasts and they do tours. You know, he said back when he was trying to get involved in the wrestling business and he was involved with what culture, they were trying to get anyone affiliated with wrestling on the show. And he found me as if like, <laughs> I'm this 
great celebrity, like what a guest. Keith Elliott Greenberg agreed to come on our on my podcast. But uh, so that that is a trip. It is kind of mind boggling. But particularly when I meet a wrestler who says he came up reading my stuff in the magazines. Right. And I don't know if you you've probably had this experience, too. But what I also found was when I was active there and I'm talking about like, let's say, WWF magazine, WWE magazine, sometimes I would then meet these superstar talents on the roster like and they i'd never met them before and they knew who i was from the magazine like they knew my name i remember like the first time i met stone cold steve austin tom pritchard introduced us backstage at the garden and i'd been already working there a year or two and he immediately just goes yeah yeah i know who you are man yeah he goes you know i don't read all the dirt sheets none of that shit he's he said wwf magazine that's the only thing i read (laughs) <laughs> and I'm thinking in my head, well, I don't know what I think about that, but thank you. I'm flattered. You know, Mick Foley had the same reaction. He immediately knew who I was. He started talking to me and you stop and think, wow, I, I sometimes forget these guys are reading this stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Because that, that, that was the house organ, but you know, Mick Foley was unique because Mick Foley is also, I think have a nice day is the greatest professional wrestling book ever written. So with Mick Foley, it went both ways. I really had a lot of reverence for Mick Foley as a writer. And, um, you know, despite him doing these death-defying, you know, moves in the ring, I'm not going to say stunts because I don't want to demean what he did. um, You know, I saw, yeah, there were many other sides of Mick Foley, as you saw. He's a highly intelligent man. He knew about history. He knew about the Civil War. So, uh, you know, to get a compliment from Mick Foley meant, meant an awful lot to me. It did for me, too. And I, I always felt and I, I think I still feel this way now that of all the, the wrestlers that I've encountered and had to work with, I've had very few negative experiences, but still of all of them, he was the most kind, ge- warm hearted, genuine human um, and, and I'm and it's fun to me now to watch a lot of these documentaries they're making, like Dark Side of the Ring, but also those A and E ones where he's all over them. And I think people can see what a what a sweet man he is. My wife, when they did the and, and Foley, what, what, a, what a worldly man he is. Yes, yes. And what a historian he is of the industry. And the difference between him and us, of course, is he gave his body to that industry while we just remained remain observers. The beauty of it is also he can now he can be a historian and a writer. I never had to, you know, think of retiring because un, unless or until I get Alzheimer's, I can do this. Oh, knock wood on that one, Keith. Yeah. Uh, that's let's not even go that go down that route. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. And I mean, and, and we still get to do it now, like I was saying. But um, you so you started on the magazines at WWE 85. Was that the beginning? 85. First WrestleMania, I was writing a story for Us Weekly. And I met Ed Rashudi at ringside at, at WrestleMania 1. And as you know, because you've interviewed Ed Rashudi, um, Ed Rashudi it was a, you know an extremely erudite man who had been a journalist all over the world and uh, had been a boxer himself so understood the combat he understood combat sports um and he understood 
how to tell a story, but he was not a wrestling person. And at that time, you didn't meet many wrestling fans who had journalism degrees mm. and wanted to treat professional wrestling to an extent as wrestling journalism. And he said, why don't you come work for us? And, you know, and I said, you know, I don't want to move up to Connecticut. I don't want to do it full time. I have a lot of other things going on. He goes, we'll put you on retainer. You don't have to be an office guy. And so he opened that door for me. And you were on retainer for 22 years, 22 years. And even after I was let go, they continued to throw me some work, not as much work, but uh, they continue to to uh, throw me some work. And, you know, as recently as 2020, I'm credited as a co-author of the WWE Encyclopedia of Sports Entertainment. So I never had a falling out with the company. Which is great. And that's really great. And I, and I want to go on record without getting into too much any of the details on it or anything like that. But I just want to say that I fought very hard to keep you on retainer. I want you to know that. <laughs> I didn't know that because I remember at one point I did. you were not allowed to talk to me. I called you and you said, I'm not allowed to speak to you right now. Yeah, well, there was a couple of reasons for that. So yeah, it was me and, and also Jeremy Brown, who was you know another a senior editor there who had been there for a couple of years by that point, but who also had a relationship with you. We both really championed you and said, look, you can't, this is because, you know, look, every new crew that comes in, they have their people, they have their freelancers they want to use. So it was that kind of a thing. And and we were just saying, look, you can get rid of everybody else, but Keith is like, you know, he is the, he is the, the, the name attached to this magazine from a writing point of view for so long, but alas to no avail. And the thing is what, our setup in the office at that time was an open kind of newsroom environment. We didn't even have cubicle walls anymore, which is also something that I hated. And that was a reason why when an edict came down like that, you know how they could sometimes be like, if someone's let go or whatever, you're not allowed to talk to them. The same thing happened to me actually when they let me go, but I normally wouldn't even listen to, to rules like that, which is probably why I'm not there anymore. But but because it was so wide open and I was literally 20 feet away from the publisher's office, I was like, okay, like I, I can't get away with this. If we want to talk, it'll have to be outside the building. So I had to pull like, um, I, I had to treat you like Bruno. You know, I remember Bruno told me when I interviewed him, when Arnold Skolin died, how heartbroken he was that people that were good friends with him, like Skoland and Blassie would say that to him. I love you, Bruno, and I understand everything you've been through, but they won't let me talk to you. I don't know what to tell you. And, and it was this heartbreaking thing. I'm not saying that you're Bruno San Martino or I am. Certainly not. I would never, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would never dare to put myself in that category. And I want to, oh yeah. Bruno no. San Martino came up a lot, you know, uh, you know, when I was working for the magazine, I remember early on, I wrote an article for Ed Rashuti and Linda McMahon was involved with the magazine. She would read all the articles and I wrote something about great champions. I, I was about Hulk Hogan, but I said, you know, almost aspires to the grand legacy of, you know, Bruno Sardino. And that back then everything was written on paper and there was a handwritten note, more Bruno question mark. It's like, stop talking about Bruno, you Mark. 
Yes. And I was in the office when I was there. I was I was kind of known as I was the guy that would always try and slip Bruno's name into things. And I would be whenever they would say, hey, we're going to do something on the greatest this or the greatest that or the greatest champions. I'd always go like, hey, what about Bruno? Got to put Bruno. They always knew that that was me. They did. You know, remember when they did the 100 greatest WWF superstars of all time or something like that? WWE superstars. Yeah, I made sure that Bruno had to be. I'm not. He's got to be top ten. He's got to be. Right, you couldn't featured. put a number. Like if 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 we had done something like that, and uh, and we put Bruno as number one, that would never go through. Just like now, when I don't know if they would do the greatest uh, WWE superstars of all time. Well, you'd probably have to put Roman Reigns as number one right now because you're also marketing the current product. Right. And it was a weird fine line that we drew. I, I, I wanted to tell a, a, a Bruno office story. But before I do that, you bring something to mind where whenever we do those historical things, we had to be so careful because you have two problems is you don't want to bury the current talent and say the old guys were better. Right. But you also don't want to be so completely predictable and say, well, the guy who's our guy right now is automatically always the greatest ever. And, and you kind of have to walk that line. Like I always remember with Fantasy Warfare, if you remember that department in Raw Magazine, for those who don't remember, we would have a department where we pitted an old school wrestler against a current star and imagined what their match would be like. So you could imagine the problem we had was that was exactly what I said. It's like, well, could we really have the old guy beat the new guy? Like that looks really bad, but we can't just have the same outcome every time where the new guy wins. So every once in a while, we, every once in a while, the old guy would go over and we did it one time. And I know we learned our lesson, but it was Chris Jericho versus Ricky, the dragon steamboat. And we said, I remember our reasoning was this. We knew that Jericho idolized Steamboat. He was one of his main inspirations. At least that's what we had heard. And we thought, hey, it's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Nobody's going to mind if he wins this fantasy match that never even happened. So we did it. We slipped it in. And let me tell you, we heard it from Shane, who heard it from Jericho, who said, your guys are burying, are burying me in the magazine he was upset that he lost a fantasy match to Ricky Steamboat in the magazine. And that's why we said, okay, we got to, maybe we just need to kind of get rid of fantasy warfare if it's going to create these issues. <laughs> right, right. It'd be like now if you had Chief J Strongbow beating Sami Zayn. Right. Yeah, I get, yeah, yeah, something like that. Right. But, but so to get back to the Bruno thing, I remember one time, this is a story I don't, I don't think I ever told you. But when um, when we worked for Shane and when Shane McMahon was the head of our department, even Shane knew that I was the Bruno guy and I would never shut up about Bruno. And um, it was when we did that 100 greatest and he, he had a big spread in it. And I and I, uh, I I wanted to I floated the idea of making him number one. Of course, they shot me down. But I remember Shane walked by one day and he saw the big spread that we had. You know, we, we would always put the layout on the wall for him to see before the magazine came out. And I think and it wasn't it wasn't intended to be argumentative or any, but I think it was sort of like him wanting to kind of end the Bruno debate once and for all with me. And he turned to me and he just goes, you know, Bruno was the shits. 
And that's when I said, look, you don't want to start an argue with me, an argument with me here in front of everybody. You can't just say Bruno was the shits and then walk back into your office. Like, you know, I know I work for you, and, but we're going to have words if you say that. And, and we kind of laughed it off and chuckled, but it was like he had just had enough of hearing me put over Bruno all the time in the office. Well, you know, now you're, you're sparking another memory. Um, I was at Freddie Blass, after Freddie Blassie's funeral, I went out to eat with Vince and Linda and Shane and Shane's wife. And we sat at the same table. And, uh, you know, we all, I, I had just co-written uh, Freddie Blassie's uh, autobiography. And we were all feeling very fond of Freddie Blassie. You've been, you'd been in Freddie Blassie's home, yes. you know, knew Freddie Blassie's wife. And so um, it was beyond wrestling. This was, you know, we were mourning the loss of someone we all felt very warm feelings for. And Shane's wife looked at me and she said, as we were chatting, who's your favorite wrestler of all time? And, you know, Vince is sitting there. <laughs> at the time, he's estranged from Bruno. So I said, Terry Funk. And Terry Funk may be the greatest wrestler of all time. And uh, nobody seemed offended by that. But <laughs> I said, Bruno, I would have probably been exiled from the place and from WWE. My retainer would have ended a few years earlier. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad it's not like that anymore. I was so relieved when they they patched things up, even though part of me, I have to say, there was part of me deep down that felt, oh, they finally got to him. You know, even Bruno can be gotten, you know, you know what I mean? Although it would be the equivalent of Yogi Berra making peace with George Steinbrenner. It's like the fans deserve to see Bruno in the Hall of Fame. And as Lanny Poffo has told me on numerous occasions, Randy Savage did not want to be in the Hall of Fame if his entire family wasn't in the Hall of Fame with him, his brother Lanny and his father Angelo. And Lanny was uh, worldly enough to understand, you know, he was not at the level of Randy Macho Man Savage, nor was Angelo Poffo. And, but Randy's thing was that, uh, you know, the, all the Von Erichs went in, including Mike and Chris Von Erich. And why should the Von Erichs all go in and not all of the Poffos? And then Randy died. And eventually he made the decision, Lanny did, that yes, we're going to agree to have Randy go into the Hall of Fame. And Randy's mother was a bit upset. And she said, you know, that, those, that goes against Randy's wishes. And Lanny Poffo said, yeah, well, I'm the oldest son now because Randy has passed away. And I'm not doing this for the macho man. I'm doing this for the macho fan. And everybody can laugh about wrestling. Oh, ha ha. It's all a work. Well, this is their family. And this is serious stuff. And this is honoring a legacy. And it's also honoring the experiences and the memories of the fans. And, you know, it's just like Bruno being in the Hall of Fame. I was there too. I, I went to see Bruno inducted in the Hall of Fame and I didn't have a press pass. I went as a, as a supporter, as a fan, as did you. And who was two seats behind me, two rows behind me? The Blue Meanie. We were all there as fans. And so, you know, those experiences are authentic. And, uh, you know, those Bruno emotions 
You know, that's something I can remember arguing with teachers in school who were, you know, condemning wrestling and wrestling fans. And Bruno was, Bruno's legitimate. You can't say Bruno's not legitimate. And whether I, and I remember I asked my aunt Sylvia, who's long departed, I said, uh, is wrestling fake? Is it real? And she thought a moment and she said, and she meant this. She said, it's fake except when Bruno wrestles. You see, that is what they were sort of even going for back then. It was like this weird thing where, you know, it's like that famous Johnny Valentine line, right? Where he said, I can't convince you that wrestling is real, but I can convince you that I'm real, right? So so people wanted to harbor these ideas that, okay, there's a lot of shenanigans that go on on the undercard. There's goofy characters and things. But when you get to that main event and when you're wrestling for the heavyweight championship of the world, that's legit. And I think they they tried to, meaning promotions, tried to foster even that idea without just coming out and saying it, especially even more so with the NWA world title, even more than the WWF one, where it was like, I don't even think there were years there where they didn't even have heel babyface dynamics with when it came to the world title. It was just this is a world title match and the end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that is something I mourn. Um, it, it, that the you know the meaning of the world title, and I'm hoping that uh, although look Roman Reigns is Universal Champion, you know I do think about before I watch a pay per view. Oh no, Roman can't lose the title, even to Brock, he can't lose the title, and um, you know that does mean that championship around Roman Reigns' waist does mean something to me still. And look, there are feel good moments. Um, you know, uh, I it, when certain people have won the WWE championship, particularly Coffee Kingston mm. a few years back, but it's not quite the same. I mean, the universal title is the real championship. And, you know, when I was recently watching um, the Kenny Omega Hangman Page match, you know, Page winning the AEW title, it was a historical moment in my mind watching it. So yes. I don't want to say it was always better then, but it was different then. And, you know, that title meant so much more to me as a fan then, particularly because fans were included in and we thought those could be legitimate matches. Yeah, it was different. And I think one of the things, and I've thought about this, um, one of the things that's changed, tell me if you agree with this, whereas I feel like the past, maybe it's kind of like from attitude era to the present, it might have been a Russo thing. I don't know. The, the thinking really is that the belt, the championship makes the star. So like you put your belt on somebody that kind of needs it to get to the next level. You know, the belt, I, I don't want to call it a prop, but but it's a tool that's designed to get people over. Whereas I feel like the mentality back then was the press. Uh, finding the right person to carry the title helps to put the title over that. What we're trying to do is we're not using the title as a tool to put somebody over and make them seem legitimate. We want to find somebody that's the most respected and admired or talented and over person already put the title on them because it makes the title seem important and legitimate because we have to protect the legitimacy of that title it's actually more important than any of the individual wrestlers because the wrestlers come and go but this title is always our 
our thing. I feel like that's been a shift, whereas the title wasn't treated as much. I, I actually think one of the bigger shifts with that was when Hogan won the title. I remember, and what preceded that, and I've had this conversation both with Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik, Backlund certainly did not want to lose the title to Hulk Hogan because Backlund was a college wrestler and considered himself a real believable wrestler in the, you know, the same vein as Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe, you know, and those, and Lou Fez, those great athletic NWA champions. And, um, you know, Hogan was looked at as a gimmick guy. And, but the, the but Bob Backlund, was willing to lose to the Iron Sheik, who had, you know, him and Piper had, they were the biggest gimmick guys of the era, but the Iron Sheik had been in the Pan-American Games. He had been in international wrestling competitions. He was a two-time coach for the U.S. Olympic team, and he would lay down, well, he would uh, not quite submit to the camel clutch, but allow Arnold Scullin to throw in the towel to the camel clutch. And he was willing to do that. And I remember when Hulk Hogan won the title a month later in Madison Square Garden, being on the phone with Bill Apter a day or two later. And Bill Apter, you know, who had a very old school perspective, had learned a lot about the dynamics of the business from Vince McMahon Sr said, I don't know, you know, the champion has always been the giant killer. These giants come after the champion and the champion might be smaller, but but, the, but he's tougher and he can out-wrestle them. And Hulk Hogan is the contender. Like, are people going to buy this now? And I remember having a conversation with him on the phone. Right, because Hogan had been the one even going back to the AWA. He'd been chasing that world title status, right, for years and not yeah. getting it. Right, and 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 them doing their own version of the dusty finish where, uh, you know, everyone would, in St. Paul would think that he won, and then it turns out that somebody did something illegal right before the ending, and hence, uh, you know, he, the, the champ was disqualified and Hogan wasn't the champion. And now I, I'd always thought, like I think a lot of people thought, that it was sort of Vern Gagne's lack of vision or whatever you want to call it, that he wouldn't pull the trigger and put the title on Hogan. But, but I think from, from looking more into it, what I've come to learn is that it was actually more Hogan, that, that Vern wanted Hogan to be the champ, but Hogan didn't want to be held down. He liked going to Japan. He liked traveling. He didn't want to just stay in the Midwest and freeze to death and all this stuff. He just, that, that he didn't want it. You know, have you heard that? Uh, I haven't heard it, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, an interesting question. And there's enough guys who are still alive who could, who, you know, have all their faculties who could probably talk about it, including Greg Gagne. That's true. But um, I, I mean, Hulk Hogan's still alive, too. But um, you never know the, the, the veracity of, of what he's saying half the time. You know, he likes to yeah, spin the arm. Because he's one of those guys who's so, as you know, he's so engaging to interview. And, uh, you know, when, when he's looking you in the eye and telling these stories, it's like, I want to believe him. But I don't know, you know, how much of it is legends created in his mind and how much of it is is legit he you told know? me 
Hogan told me a story um, that I've never heard any, him tell to anyone else unless I'm wrong. I don't know if you know this story, but he claimed that, and I know this part is true, that the night he won the title from the Iron Sheik, January 84, that was the last Madison Square Garden show that Vince Sr. was physically present for. And he died, I guess, four months later or so. But he said that... Um, at that time, supposedly, of course, he was dying, but people didn't know and he hadn't told anyone. Now, I don't know what the timeline was, if, if even by that point, he was still keeping people in the dark. But Hogan told me that at that point, he at least did not know. He had no idea. And he said they were in the, the men's room together at the same time. I've heard, I've heard this story. You have heard this. And, and he kind of urinating blood. Yes. And I mean, I'm not just talking about where it's like tinged or orange or whatever, but just just blood, 100 percent that he was peeing blood. And he thought, oh, my God, this guy is this man is dying. You know, yeah, it has to be. And um, sure enough, four months later, he, he was. Dead. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when they. The, whatever it was, WWF superstars or superstars of wrestling, when the TV show used to begin, they would play the music from Thriller and you would see Hulk Hogan and it was kind of, um, color. you know, there was a color effect put on the footage and he's about to enter the ring for his match with the Iron Sheik. And you see him make the sign of the cross. And when he crosses through the curtain, Vince McMahon Sr. is holding the curtain open. And right. so that's quite a historical moment and kind of a sad moment because I grew up watching Vince McMahon Sr. shows. And I remember, like all the members of the McMahon family, there was a connection he had with fans. And I can remember seeing him walk into the crowd, like there being a disruption in the crowd, and Vince Sr. would know fans' names and say, come on, so-and-so, calm down. And, you know, he was a distinguished presence. And, you know, it's so symbolic. It's the last card that Vince McMahon Sr. attended. And now the business was going to be altered in a way he couldn't have even imagined. Right. And I don't think he, he, he had any inkling of when he sold it uh, to his son exactly where it was headed. But how um, no, no, he couldn't. And, and uh, but it's interesting, though, how um, he also never really put himself out there publicly in the same way that Vince Jr. Vincent Kennedy McMahon has yeah. done. Not even not as an announcer, not as an authority figure. I mean, no, he, he had w Willie Gilsenberg as the figurehead president. Right. So, like, yeah. how how aware was the average fan back then of Vince the program? Yeah. He was in the pro there was a photo of him in the program. Okay. We knew who he was. We knew that Vince McMahon was the boy, and I'm talking about Vincent James McMahon, not Vincent Kennedy McMahon, was was the, the head of the WWF. Um, and when we would see him when I was a kid, there it's like there's the boss, there's the guy responsible for this all. There was a certain aura that he had, and he was distinguished. He didn't he didn't look like a so-called wrestling person. Mm -hmm. He looked like a, you know, a, um, a very successful entrepreneur who was bringing this to us. 
And I think they were, you know, back then there were a lot of promoters like that. Like, you, you know, you had the promoters that were ex wrestlers and sometimes they might be a little more rough around the edges kind of thing. The Bob guy. Like, right. That's the first person that comes to mind, but yeah, like guys like that. And, but then you also had the people like the Sam Muchnicks of the world and the Vince McMahon seniors of the world who really did, or Ray Fabiani and Jim Barnett, who were these figures who, if pro wrestling didn't exist, they would still be promoting something. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, they would. Yes, they would. And to a degree, even though he would occasionally come back and wrestle, I spent a lot of time going to Florida because my uncle got a job. He was a baker. And that was my Aunt Sylvia's husband. My Aunt <laughs> Sylvia said it's real, except that when Bruno wrestles, her husband got a job as a baker at the Beau Rivage Hotel on Collins Avenue in Miami, the Miami Beach area. So we would go down to, and eventually my grandparents from Brighton Beach moved down there from Brooklyn. So we would go to wrestling at Miami Convention Hall, Miami Beach Convention Hall. And um, Eddie Graham would wrestle occasionally, but when I would see Eddie Graham in street clothes, it's like, oh, here's the boss. Here's the guy who, who runs it all. And um, he didn't seem like a, and when you saw him in street clothes, and even though he had the bleach blonde hair, he did seem like the entrepreneur. Here is the promoter. Um, and even though he was an ex-wrestler, and he probably wouldn't be the promoter had he not been a wrestler, there was something about him. Again, he had an aura of respectability. Have you ever read Chokehold, the book by Jim Wilson? Uh, no, I, I, I have not read it. Because he... Uh... I know a lot of the stuff he wrote has been debunked. He was the, he was an ex football player, got into wrestling, was supposed to be a big star, I guess, never really quite cut it. And he was kind of bitter. You know, one of these things is he was trying to unionize and cause he, cause he was spoiled. I don't want to say spoiled, but I mean, he was used to the NFL. Now you now you tell like a wrestling, person. right? He's not spoiled. Spoiled <laughs> like those cry babies. Right. <laughs> you want the medical benefits. I should say, right. He actually wants to be able to retire one day. No, he, he, you know, he was used to that. And one of the things he claimed was that Barnett had made overtures to him, sexual overtures that he'd rejected, and therefore he was blacklisted. But in that book, he paints uh, not the most complimentary picture of Eddie Graham. And he spent a lot of time down in Florida. He sort of makes him out to be a bit of a sadist and kind of um, um, ruthless. And it, it's, but again, That's it's one of those. In that he would hurt people who wanted to get into the business and put them in the ring with him yes. or Bob Roop. Bob Roop. Right. And he would, but the way that Wilson describes it in the book, it's more, it's, it's like he, he, he visually would be sort of taking pleasure, really pleasure in watching these guys get just bent and twisted and screaming in pain. I mean, I think that, I think that part is true. Yeah. Um, somebody just, you know, I'm on so many different, uh, groups now on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, somebody uh, just posted like eight millimeter camera footage of, I think, Bob Roop stretching, or it's either Bob Roop or Hiro Matsuda stretching an aspiring, you know, wrestler somewhere in Tampa. And, um, you know, I mean, that's the way it was done back then. Um, yeah. Sure, I guess you had to be a bit of a sadist to run a wrestling promotion because 
you wanted people to respect the business. And it's funny, I actually understand this. And, you know, Vern Gagne was like that. Stu Hart was certainly like that. I mean, I think it was uh, Smith Hart told me a story about a fan who would call out all the heels and Stu Hart dared him to come up. He'd come up to the, the dungeon and the guy's like, I'm so tough. I'm not going to drive up there. I'm going to run up the hill. And Stu, he put the fan in something called the sugar hold, some mm, torture yes. hold. And according to Smith Hart, Stu, I've written, I've written about this a few times. The fan had a long beard and he ended up swallowing his beard. And while he was being, you know, while he was conking out and the guy's laying there and the heart children is standing around and one of them says, dad, I think you killed him. And Stu's like, no, I didn't. And he kind of lifts the guy up and chops him. The guy spits at his beard and stuff. And it's like, never, you know, never demean our sport again. And I kind of get it. That's it. And, and when I wrote the, when I was researching the Sheik book, there's a story that would always get repeated. And I think it probably happened more than once of a guy claiming, you know, an amateur wrestler showing up at the Kobo arena and trying to expose the Sheik. I know who you really are. You're, you know, you're Ed Farhat, you know, you own the company and the Sheik kind of momentarily in the corner somewhere, breaking character, grabbing him by the, by the shirt, putting him up against the wall and saying, yes, yes, I am Ed Farhat. And if you say that again, I will cut your throat and kill you. Right. And this guy just being mortified and they never saw him again. And I think it goes back to that kind of thing of it's that paranoia. Right. I mean, the business being so protected and looked down on that there, there was a real fear that this could all go away if people find out what we're really doing or if they think that we're not really tough or we're fake or this then our livelihood is gone. So we have to viciously and jealously protect this thing or we're going to lose it, right? And which is, you know, the urgency of that isn't there anymore. Right. But you know what? Even as a fan growing up, I felt some of those same emotions because, um, you know, people would make fun of you for being a wrestling fan. It's like, sure. I watch the NFL. How can you watch that fake stuff? And, uh, you know, there was a part of me that resented those those statements. And I thought, well, if you think I'm a moron for watching wrestling, well, then my parents are morons and my grandparents are morons and my aunt Sylvie is a moron. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, you know, I would have savored the sight of somebody being stretched by Bill Watts or, you know, threatened by Ed Farhad or Hiro Matsuda. I would have been even if I was clued in that it was a work, it would have given me satisfaction to know that someone suffered for demeaning the thing that I love. Yeah, I, I could sort of see that. I could understand that. And and look, uh, and also to, to bring it back to the magazines too, I mean, to be, this was something I went through as well, to be so fascinated by something and love it so much and then find yourself in the middle of it in a way where you're, you know, you're not a wrestler, but, but you're, but you're not just a fan anymore. You're doing right, something yes. more than that. That's an incredible feeling. You know, it's I mean, I'm sure you experienced it. And, you know, you go from feeling very privileged 
And look, there are stories that guys have told me that I'll never repeat because it's a close society and I was privy to confidential information. And I wouldn't repeat some stories that people told me in confidence. I might, when I interview a wrestler who was around at the time, hint at some of those topics and give the wrestler the opportunity to retell that story. But I am not the one, um, you know, revealing those secrets. So, you know, you do, you've loved this thing your entire life. And now you're, you know, you were admitted into this secret society where people are sometimes sitting next to you in the car and confiding to you, you know, and it's, I never imagined I would be here. And I can remember when Facebook started, like some kid I hadn't seen since I was a teenager, like looking at my list of Facebook friends and seeing George the Animal Steal. And he's him saying like, how did you go from like, watching this stuff to these guys being your friends. Yes. And I don't know if they were friends, but in every instance, but uh, they, were, they, they certainly took us into their confidence. And I am grateful for that. Yeah, and, and I'm in the same boat as you where for all the stories that I've told over the years, and I think now I'm at the point where there's stories that have come to be related with me, where if I get interviewed by somebody, they want to ask me, oh, what was writing in the limo with Vince, uh, going to Fred Blassie's house. It's like I have like my greatest hits. But right. for all those, there are things that I also have never and will never talk about. You know, there's right. things that you sometimes sometimes, you know, because it's a crazy business. Sometimes it's because it's it was told in confidence, people's private lives. And sometimes it's things that I just don't really want to think about. <laughs> so so yes, I try to put them out of my mind. Same here. Right. Same here. Now, those are stories, to be honest. If I were alone with you, I would tell you those stories because you've heard probably. But I'm not going to go on a podcast and talk about it. Right. Either. Right. And I, right. I'm not going to do it in a platform where it's like, hey, kids, gather around. I'm going to talk to you about the right, wrestling business. Right, I'm not right. going to do that. It's something different. But yeah, it's like that. It's that weird um, experience of I had it with, I told you the story, you know, about like Ric Flair when we were in Manchester and he's buying me drinks and telling me about the horseman and Piper and, you know, and Piper was another one just hanging out with him at a photo shoot for hours, just talking about everything under the sun and riding in, in rental cars with just surreal moments. You know, you're riding in a rental car with, with Mr. Perfect and the big boss man in the back seat, and they're giggling like school kids. And they're telling you, you know, stories about the ultimate warrior or whatever. And you're going, how did this happen? How did I get here? You know, right? what am I doing here? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, but then there was a part of me after a while where I felt, well, because I've, earn their confidence. Yeah. I put the articles in the magazine every month. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm in their world. I'm not of their world because mm -hmm. I'm still, I've still never taken a bump. So right. I'm not one of them, but I feel privileged that they're admitting me into this society of theirs. And they're, you know, allowing me to hear this stuff. And because I, I those guys would probably go into bars and tell those stories every God. night whoever was sitting next to them anyway. Right. And, and I would, I would always appreciate it. And that when this would happen and I'm, if it, if it's happened to you too, I'm sure where there would be certain guys, certain wrestlers who would very consciously put me over in front of other people when they didn't have to, they would go out of their way and it would be a simple thing, like just to even acknowledge that they knew me. 
right. would walk by casually because they knew people were watching. Like I remember well, Flair did that once when I, I was giving a tour backstage to new writers for WWE.com. These kids that were like maybe 10 years younger than me. And I'm showing them around and Flair comes walking down the uh, the hall towards us. And the kid, you know, these kids are like frozen. And right, he, saw that. he looks at me. It was the quickest, most subtle thing. And he it's hard. It, it's a visual thing. It, but he looks at me and he just quickly points at me and he just goes, Bry. And I looked at him and I just went, Nate. And we just kept walking like that. I just pointed back like it was nothing, you know. But even me inside, I'm sort of marking out, too. But he knew in that moment that by doing that, he was going to put me over with these new writers, you know, and he did it's that. It's funny you say it. And that, this has happened to me outside of wrestling because I always had other jobs, you know, full-time jobs. And when I was working at Fox News, Steve Austin was in the building and he was being interviewed by Laurie Dew, the correspondent whose father was Bob Dew, who at one point was the president of WCW. So all these worlds come together and she's like, let's go see Keith Greenberg. And I'm in the gym at Fox News and Austin walks in and puts me over comes over, greets me, shakes my hand. And believe me, people stopped in their tracks. He knows Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, they knew I wrote about wrestling, but they didn't know there was that level of intimacy. And that was Austin putting me over. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, Austin, I always found had a lot of respect for the writers, for the magazine guys. He really did. It's like he, he, he really, <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I don't think I knew. Well, I wish we had more time for that one. <laughs> Maybe for No, next- no, there was an incident. You're involved in it. Oh, wait a it minute. Was a, it was before WrestleMania and it was a work. It, they were two work stories. Yes. You were like, why Austin's going to win and Aaron did why The Rock is going to win. And and um, like the story you told with Jericho in Fantasy Warfare, Austin was very mad at Aaron, especially Aaron called him injury prone. And so now it's not a work anymore. It's a shoot, at least in Austin's mind. And he was furious at Aaron. Now that you mention it, right, this is something I haven't thought about since 2003, I guess, whenever it was. But yeah, I do remember that. And I remember, and and if I remember this right, you know, our publisher, Barry Werner, you also knew and know very well. Yes. Barry was great. He was a great boss, but he was also very, always very anxious about things like that happening, you know, Uh, damage control and image control. It was something. And I remember that he was in a panic over that and he was kind of having having a powwow with Aaron and just deciding how we were going to fix this and lock this down and it was really um and I and I spoke to Austin about it uh, right after that and I told him look Aaron knows how mad you are you called him and you cursed him out and uh, you know and he's aware of it uh you know we were trying to do something to you know, promote interest in the upcoming match. So Brian was saying you were going to win. Aaron was saying you were going to lose. It's not personal. And I said, and I told Aaron when he sees you again, not to hide from you, not to be scared of you, walk up to you, look you in the eye and shake your hand and discuss it with you. And um, I don't think that that ever happened. I think they both just decided to ignore it from that Hmm. point. 
Wow, that's interesting. That I have not thought about that since it first happened. I think maybe I just buried it down in in my psyche, not <laughs> wanting to think because I've been in in the same situation with other wrestlers. That you know, that kind of what happened with Aaron, where they sometimes would take something too seriously, or it happened or, with me. Yeah, it had, you, because yeah. again, you're you're trying to hype interest in something, and sometimes. They're, they're human beings and they're real world people. So you say something and it hits a nerve. I can remember uh, when Bret Hart, I believe, was in the Survivor Series, hit one of his brothers, the one who never wrestled, who was a referee. It might have been Dean. Dean, if I'm yeah, right. I think um, so. He had died a night or two before. And I remember Gorilla Monsoon acknowledging that that Brett is here, you know, and, you know, despite this tragedy in his family. And I wrote about it and Brett was hurt that I was using the death of, you know, his sibling in a way to like hype a wrestling show. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, you know, and I like Brett and always did. And I was ready to apologize to Brett. And Ed Rusciutti said, I I'm gonna talk to Brett. And he was seeing Brett sooner and he expressed my apologies and Brett kind of got it. And we, we, he and I never discussed it, but I would have been happy to apologize to him because I certainly didn't want to compound the family's, you know, loss. Right. No, definitely not. And there would be times where obviously, yes, sometimes it's, it's misinterpreted or right. the wrestler is not understanding maybe that this is meant as a worked hype. thing, hype. But, you know, like you said, too, even there might have been times where I certainly for in my case where I rethought things and I thought maybe I shouldn't have, have written that. And sometimes you forget that these guys are human beings. And, you know, it, it's just mostly it was their misunderstanding. But occasionally I felt that it was partly my fault. And regardless, I would always apologize. I didn't want any trouble from these from these guys. Yeah. And now with, with Inside the Ropes, we don't really have to worry about that so much anymore, right? No, I mean, we don't, but there's still, look, I have these discussions with um, Dante Richardson. You know, we don't want to alienate talent. Hmm. We, these are still people we want to talk to us. And, you know, we're not going out and bashing talent. We're not going out and making fun of them and taking joy of, you know, saying they had a poor performance. We're not there to, you know, tear promotions down. It's not that kind of a magazine. It's a magazine really for the pro wrestling enthusiast, the smart fan who likes to discuss the fine points of professional wrestling, but we're not going out to rip them to shreds and take pleasure in that. That's a different type of outlet. Um, but, you know, we do have conversations about, look, we don't want to necessarily alienate WWE but like, for instance, I just did that story on the battle of New for New York between AEW and WWE. I was backstage, say, uh, not backstage. I was at Madison Square Garden the same night you were. And I was interviewing fans. And the fans who said, look, one guy said to me, look, I'm only here because I got free tickets. And I would never see WWE because WWE is stale and it's boring. And I like AEW. And I think every fan, you know, should be watching AEW and not this. I didn't put that in the story because that's going to really, uh, you know, uh, 
it's going to cause me to be ostracized because it would be of all the people you interviewed, that's the quote you chose. Right. And I didn't right. put that in. Yeah, you, you do have to watch out for that sort of thing, even when you're not. I mean, obviously, when we were working for a particular wrestling company, it's even more top of mind. Right. But, but even still, I think all and that's why and this could be a debate for another day. I think anything that's, quote unquote, wrestling journalism from within the business is never going to be pure journalism. I mean, there's always an element of ballyhoo. There's always an element of what's the angle here. And, and, and I don't I don't mind that at all. I, I enjoy it. I love yeah. writing for for Inside the Ropes, NPWI. I'm glad I get to write right. for the both of them. And like I've said to you before, that you know this this may hurt my credentials as a biographer, but I often feel that, um, th- like they say, if you if, if you how does the cliche go? Uh, print the legend, right? If you if if it's a uh, if you're not sure or whatever it goes, I, I'm more interested in if if the story is engaging and intriguing and entertaining to me, especially when I'm writing an article in a wrestling magazine, um, that's more important than if it's 100% true. <laughs> right. Although I think we both aspire to accuracy and yes. I know you do because we spoke throughout your entire process, writing the book on it, Farhad, the original Sheik. And you were like, I couldn't verify this. Right. And you, I've read your manuscript and you sometimes say it in the book. This is the story. I wasn't able to verify it. So you're net, you're not stating this information as fact. It's no. The, yeah. And that's the difference. I think I think there are some people that are if you're 100 percent only interested in pure fact, then you wouldn't even include you wouldn't even mention things like that. Whereas my attitude is this story is so fantastic. I can't prove it really happened. So I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to tell this amazing story and then I'm going to tell you. I'm not really sure if this really happened. Here's what right. may have happened instead. I'm going to give you all that info because I love those stories, even when I'm acknowledging that they may sometimes be apocryphal. Right. 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 So, wow. Yeah, I could I could keep going forever on this with you. And we'll, we'll have to do it again because I have stories in my head and things that yeah, we we'll went through. That, certainly. Right. We didn't even get to. I mean, this could be like a marathon thing, but but I'm going to hold it there and just say to yeah, I, I also have a full time job that I should get back to. Yes, I think that's right. And, and I and I have to it's it's called being Mr. Mom right now that I have to get back to. But um, but yes. Yeah, so the for people that want to check out your stuff, it's inside the ropes these days. Now is, that's is inside the, the ropes every month. My last book was uh, You're Too Sweet, Inside the mm-hmm. Indie Wrestling Revolution for ECW Press, which is publishing your upcoming book. And uh, I, right after your book comes out, I have another book coming out from ECW Press that is going to tentatively being called um, Follow the Buzzards, uh, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that stuff for sure. And um, thank you so much, Keith, as always. It's a pleasure, whether we're recording or not, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And catch Absolutely, up. it is. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Keith Elliott Greenberg. And I hope you can see what I meant there when I said that that truly was a very rewarding conversation. Uh, very, very interesting and fascinating to me, at least. And I hope you felt the same way listening to it. Really a, a rare experience always getting to talk to Keith about his memories and his insights and even our time working together 
in our own way in the crazy world of professional wrestling. So I hope you enjoyed that. Also hope you're going to keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because we are going to keep on rolling with some great guests. Uh, next week, I have the man that I like to call the Dean of Detroit Wrestling and somebody uh, without whom uh, the Sheik biography really would not be anywhere near as effective and thorough as it is. And that is Mr. Dave Brzezinski, also known as Supermouth Dave Drayson, who was also the last professional wrestling manager of the Sheik. So that is going to be a really, really good one. Uh, we have a few more guests already lined up and ready to go. Uh, I've mentioned Jeff Walton, who was one of the uh, main forces behind the Los Angeles wrestling territory in the heydays of Mike LaBelle. I also have um, an interview I recently did with Les Thatcher, the great Les Thatcher. Um, his reputation precedes him, trainer, uh, booker, announcer, wrestler, publisher, you name it, he's done it. And we're going to have him coming up really soon. So be on the lookout for that stuff. Also, um, if you would like to find me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon in both those places. Also on Facebook, if you look up Pro Wrestling FAQ, that is the page on Facebook where I post most of my wrestling-related content. And also uh, on my social media, you'll find links to my author website, which has a lot more information there if you're looking to find out what I've been working on. Um, if you're looking to pick up that book I mentioned, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, I encourage you to go to um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Wherever you order books online, you should be able to pre-order it. Um, the publication date's April 12th, but you can put the order in now. Um, as you guys may know, I'm a contributor to Pro Wrestling Illustrated, so if you want to pick up issues of PWI, Go to getpwi.com. I'm also a contributor to Inside the Ropes magazine. So if you want to pick issues of Inside the Ropes up, you can go to insidetheropesmagazine.com. And as for, um, oh yeah, I'm also the co-host of the PWI podcast. Don't want to forget mentioning that. The PWI podcast with my co-host, Al Castle. That's always a lot of fun. And you can find that wherever you find your podcasts. And the same goes for this very podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle. Not sure where you're listening to it, but you can get it directly from its website, which is suawpod.com. Um, you can find it wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, uh, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. So as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and hoping that you remember to take it easy, but take it. So long, wrestling fans. Yeah.